There's a podcast I think our listeners would want to know about. It's called Seen on Radio. The show has received much acclaim for its deep and engaging dives into the history and the very structure of American society. How can we see society more clearly so we can be more effective in changing it? Seen on Radio's two recent documentary series, Seeing White and Men, have explored racism and sexism in eye-opening ways. Check out Seen on Radio. That's S-C-E-N-E on Radio from the Center for Documentary Studies and PRX. Welcome to Future Hindsight. I'm Mila Atmos. Why is the foundation of who we are as adult citizens laid in our childhood? That's a question for today's guest on Future Hindsight, Gail Joseph. She's the founding executive director of Cultivate Learning at the University of Washington, as well as the Bezos Family Foundation Distinguished Professor in Early Learning. Gail is also the 2018 recipient of the David R. Thoreau Leadership Award at the University of Washington. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Let's start with the basics. How do you define early learning? So we typically define early learning as a collection of high-quality programs available prenatal through eight years old or through third grade. So when we think about the early childhood period, we're really thinking about that kind of prenatal to eight. And what makes up the core of learning at that age? So much of critical brain development happens during that time. The foundations are laid for cognition for executive function or what we might think about as impulse control, self-regulation, and social-emotional interactions. So really, the foundation for all of life success, for academic and social-emotional life success, is really laid in those first five years. You mentioned just now high quality. How do you define high quality? Wow, that's such a great question to ask. So when you look at a high-quality early learning preschool program, you'll see adults who are educated and fairly compensated. I think that's an important part of high-quality early learning. And you'll see that they have created an environment intentionally that is exciting for children, it's stimulating for children, it provides opportunities for engaging interactions across domains. So you'll see the foundations of early math happening maybe in the block corner for early literacy happening in the book corner and throughout the classroom. You'll see the foundations for early science happening as children are interacting in the sand and water table. So it's really just kind of this busy place where children are playing and following their own interests. And yet the teachers have carefully crafted a scope and sequence of interactions that build on each other and really keep children engaged and interested and continues to build their skills across these developmental areas. One of the most important things you see in high quality early learning are the interactions between the adults and the children and how that adult also facilitates interactions between the children. That's really important, and one of the things that I have read about your work is about the emotional support between children and adults and between peers. Yes. Children to children. How do you define an emotionally supportive foundation in the context of, let's say, a preschool? Some of the most important things we do in the preschool age is actually 
grow children's emotional vocabulary. So I always like to say we need to move beyond happy, sad, and mad. Most young children know that around age three. And so we really start growing the complexity of the words they know. We start talking about emotions in the context of what's happening in the classroom, but we use children's books and games and songs and all kinds of things to build that emotional vocabulary because it really starts taking those words to be able to differentiate different emotions. Dan Siegel says you have to name it to tame it. So it's really that emotional vocabulary that begins the foundation for self-regulation skills as well and interpersonal skills and being able to problem solve. So that's one of the big things that we see in emotionally supportive classrooms is just a very rich emotional vocabulary. Right. One of the studies that is often cited, and mm-hmm. it was also cited in the Seattle preschool program mm-hmm. literature that you put forward in March, mm-hmm. was a 2017 meta-analysis of 22 high-quality studies from 1960 to 2016, mm-hmm. focused on the value of early childhood education to avert three negative educational outcomes, dropping out, special education placement, and grade retention. And everything that you just said How does that relate to this negative outcome or to prevent this negative outcome? Can you connect the dots for us here? Well, we do have now decades of research that demonstrates that when children have access to high quality early care and education where we have done our best effort at building their cognition, their social-emotional skills, their executive function, their early academic skills, and supported a transition into more formal schooling, into kindergarten and beyond. When those things have happened for young children, we see that they are less likely to be retained in a grade. They're less likely to be placed into special education. They are more likely to complete high school. Those things that I mentioned, like retention in a grade, being placed in special education, certainly high school dropout, those things cost us more, right? They cost society a lot more. So not only is there a moral and ethical reason to invest in early care and education, there's certainly an economic benefit as well. Aside from the cost Mm -hmm. to the child and the cost economically Mm -hmm. to us, What is the correlation between emotionally healthy children and a strong society in your mind? I feel if we want an educated electorate who is compassionate about others, (laughs) that the foundations of that are set in early learning. The beginnings of empathetic relationships are set in early learning being attached to an adult that allows you to create and form healthy attachments and relationships with others. That's all formed in early learning. So I see a very robust connection between the foundations around social and emotional development in early learning and social studies and civic engagement later on. I have a question about school preparedness, the people who are the children, I should say, Mm -hmm. who didn't have a preschool education Mm -hmm. because their parents can't afford it or Mm -hmm. it's not available for free. They come in and they're already behind. Mm -hmm. What does that mean to be behind? What does that look like? It's pretty profound (laughs) because some of our studies show that 
disadvantage and disparity in outcomes can show up as much as, you know, a year and a half behind the average child in kindergarten. So that's not a year and a half behind the smartest child in kindergarten. So you imagine these children moving from a preschool, if they had access to high-quality preschool, there's three adults and about 18 children in there. But what we're talking about are children that probably didn't have access to high-quality preschool education. Then they're coming into a kindergarten classroom where there's maybe one teacher and 20 children. That's where when we say that children who start behind typically stay behind, because you can imagine that the intervention's just not strong enough. There's a, a very famous study by Betty Hart and Todd Risley called Meaningful Differences. And that was done a couple decades ago with only 42 families, but it was an incredibly intensive study where they followed children birth to three and recorded the language environments in which they were in and then looked at their vocabulary growth. What they kind of were famous at coining the phrase is that when they did some extrapolation based on where that difference in the disparity was between children from very low-income families and children from wealthier families with college-educated parents, they said that children might have as much of a 30 million word gap in their vocabulary when they're entering into kindergarten. So that's just another study that points to the importance of high-quality early learning. This is a staggering number, 30 million. Is that total words heard? Yes. So it means that there were few novel words being used. There were short language interactions, and the interactions that they did have with children were ones that were more directive towards their behavior or ones that were more, we would say, a close-ended question that just required a one-word response. And so you saw these conversational turns as being really limited, and you saw the number of overall words being limited, and then you saw kind of the valence of those interactions as being a little bit more negative and, again, trying to manage the behavior. So when you say a child is a year and a half behind, it means that this child has less vocabulary, has had less emotional support, and less practice at impulse control. Right. Wow. Well, so let's talk about Cultivate Learning, which uh, you founded mm -hmm. and does all this research. But yep. also one of the things it does is it works with teachers. Yes. And naturally, <laughs> a good early learning environment requires really good teachers. That's Tell right. us a little bit about that, because I think this is always lost when we talk about early learning. We think only about the children, but we don't think about the people who deliver the lessons right. and create the rich environments and help our children be these whole human beings. I'm so glad you asked that question, because this is the part I'm incredibly passionate about, because the quality of early care and education is going to be almost wholly dependent on the adult that is in that classroom with the young children. And yet we have an early learning workforce that makes wages that keep them in poverty, they have very limited access to their own quality professional development, let alone degrees. And we're also starting to see some policies that are requiring that preschool teachers and early care and education professionals get degrees, which we think is really important. Just as much as there's a gap in access to high quality early care and education for all demographics in the United States, there is a gap to 
access high-quality professional development and college degrees for the early learning workforce. And so one of the things that we work on at Cultivate Learning is an initiative, an effort called Early Edu. But the idea about Early Edu is really to try and build the current early learning workforce and to increase access and affordability of relevant and effective college degrees. And then really what we want to do is say, when they have these college degrees, they need to be paid commensurate to at least the K-12 teachers. For us, that becomes a two-generation educational justice effort. Because if we can take the current early learning workforce, which is a majority female, a very diverse population, and who is often working full-time, have their own families, and try and create access to high-quality early childhood teacher preparation programs that they can complete while they're working in their own early education settings, then we are improving the quality of the care of the children in the program at the same time as we're creating access to college degrees. So it's two generations. Both are going to benefit. Very impressive. How did you come up with that idea to do two generations? The inspiration for the Head Start University came from a kind of an unlikely source. There's a similar issue in the military. So you have a very diverse workforce that are often place-bound, might have everything from GED to a PhD needing leadership development, and you have uh, specific competencies that you want that workforce to gain. So the Air Force actually created the Air University, which was a consortium of brick and mortar and online degree programs to be able to create access for their workforce. And so we created the Early Edu Alliance. We have over 200 members now, different colleges and universities from across the country and now even globally. And they are all collaborating to improve the quality of early care and education by increasing access to relevant and effective college education courses for free of charge. They just join the alliance. Some other innovative technology that allows current early childhood educators to be working in their own Head Start classrooms or their birth to three programs and apply what they're learning directly. Their homework basically is tomorrow, try this new interaction with young children and videotape it and upload it and reflect on that. And what did you do well? What can you do better? So they get access to that as well. Why is it that we place so little focus and investment on early childhood education, meaning on the people who are these teachers, as opposed to, let's say, throwing millions of dollars in free grants at people mm -hmm. getting PhDs mm -hmm. and then they try and become tenured professors. Why are we doing it this way? I won't have the answer, but I can throw out some ideas here. We're talking about a largely female, very diverse workforce. That might answer some of the questions about why we're not investing. We need to continue to raise awareness about the importance of the early learning years because right now people still maybe think about it as just babysitting and my babysitter didn't need a college degree and I turned out fine. You know, so we get into some of these um, conversations. The other thing is that we need dedicated advocates and some of the best advocates will be parents of young children. And 
we have a little bit of a problem because you might care about it passionately, and then once your children get into kindergarten, you're caring about something else. Some of the very studies that you were citing, we don't see some of the important returns on the investment until later, and that also can outlive a politician's tenure as well. So I think all of those things combined have created this continued underfunding of what could be, I think, the most important investment we could make. Right. Yes. It's difficult to get excited about something and invest in something that has a really long-term return. The famous James Heckman Mm -hmm. study at Mm -hmm. University of Chicago, who contends that every dollar spent Mm -hmm. on high-quality birth-to-five programs for disadvantaged children delivers a 13%. That's Mm -hmm. really high yearly return on investment in benefits to children, families, and their communities. How did he measure the 13%? And in which way can we sort of internalize that as everyday people and say, okay, this is something that's really important. We must demand that our government invests in this. And what are the public policy solutions that can address this? So I don't know all exactly that he did, but part of it was trying to come up with a, a price on the cost of the later and more costly interventions. So what is the cost of grade retention? What's the cost of somebody dropping out of high school. So before we had just these numbers on high-quality preschool, and it was about a 7 to 10% return. When he expanded it to birth to five, one of the things that he put into that equation was the benefits to moms being able to enter the workforce and being able to really maximize their potential in the workforce, their earnings over five years. Not only is it good for young children, but it's good for parents. It's good for families in terms of their economic mobility as well. So the kind of the return on that is part of that calculation. Oh, excellent. What mm-hmm. is the role of government and how can we compel our government to do the right thing? Well, one of the things we know is that there has to be another payer subsidizing this system, right? Because parents can't afford to pay and teachers can't afford to stay, right? So there needs to be another payer into the system so that we can have high quality early learning. And remember at the beginning I would define high quality as being teachers who are well-educated and fairly compensated. Because it's so human-heavy, salaries become one of the biggest costs in this. If you only have parents paying a tuition to try and pay for a well-educated, fairly compensated workforce, as well as the materials and the environment, it just then becomes inaccessible for most Americans. And we have some programs that are targeted towards Children Living in Poverty, Head Start programs, some pre-K programs are in states are really prioritized for children from low-income backgrounds. And we still have a lot of work to do to make sure that that's accessible. But we have a large swath of the population, middle-class Americans, that don't get access. They're already paying as much as a college tuition to get their children into decent, maybe early care and education, they cannot pay any more, and yet teachers still are not making enough to make their ends meet either. I feel like the role of government is to help provide free pre-K at least, but hopefully universal access to high-quality birth-to-five programming. I want to go back a little bit to cultivate learning. This is really a holistic practice. It's super impressive. Why are you doing this work? What motivates you? Wow. I want to live my life on on the right side of history here. I want to do my work in terms of social and educational justice. I want to create 
more access and opportunity for populations that have been underrepresented and marginalized and disenfranchised. And I believe that high quality early care and education is that act of social and educational justice that I feel compelled to work on every day. What do you think are the dangers of not investing here for our society? I think we continue to see the achievement gap. I think we continue to see children not reach their fullest potential. That has an economic cost to us. Seems so cliche to say they're our future, but you know, if you want people paying into your social security, you probably want to support early care and education so that they are graduating and having jobs and paying into that system. You know, it's kind of the ultimate act of homeland security is to invest in our very youngest learners. Yes, I agree 100%. What makes you hopeful looking into the future? We have seen, I think, in the past decade, a lot more attention paid to early care and education. We have a lot of business leaders who will speak to the benefits of early care and education. We have a lot of politicians who recognize this importance. We've seen mayors all over the country who ran their campaigns on investing in high-quality early care and education. So I'm really hopeful that there is now such widespread acknowledgement about the importance of early care and education. And we've seen some really, really bold and courageous acts by some of our leaders in terms of investing in this. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Thank you. We've heard it before, but it bears repeating. Investing in human beings pays off, not only for the children, but also for our society at large. It saves us the costs in the long run of preventing people dropping out, possibly being incarcerated, having no jobs. We need to invest not only in the children, but also the people who are teaching these children. I think it's really important to remember that high quality early learning really depends on qualified, well-educated teachers who are also paid fairly. The big picture is that both the teachers and the students are going to benefit the larger ecosystem of this country. They're all going to pay into Social Security, bolster our overall economy, and even strengthen our national security. What does it really mean to be poor in America? On the next episode of Future Hindsight, our guest is Stephen Pimper. He's a nationally recognized expert and professor on poverty, homelessness, and U.S. social policy. He's also the founding director of the Center for Community Engagement and Experiential Learning at the University of New Hampshire. His book, A People's History of Poverty in America, received the Michael Harrington Award from the American Political Science Association. We have among the highest rates of poverty in all of rich democracies. We have the highest rate of elderly poverty. We have the highest rate of child poverty. We have the highest rates of inequality. We have some of the lowest life expectancy rates. We have some of the highest infant mortality rates. If we think about that for more than a few seconds, I think that it creates this enormous, uncomfortable cognitive dissonance. It is so fundamentally at odds with the stories that we have told ourselves about who we are, the stories that we have told the world about who we are. Acknowledging that reality, that in some ways the American experiment in democratic capitalism has failed, or has at least failed for 
tens of millions of us. Until next time, I'm Mila Atmos. Thank you for listening to Future Hindsight. The executive producer and host of this program is Mila Atmos. The audio producer and music composer is Peter Fedak. The associate producer is Miriam Tsumbu. Find us online at futurehindsight.com and listen to us through your favorite streaming services. Thank you.